Casey, thank you. What a great lesson. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, God lets you experience what you do to others. You remember when I brought those donuts in and I used the donuts? And some of you are like, Pastor, please don't ever do that again. It made us so hungry. And I just looked at you and said, huh? I just want you to know I get it. After today, looking at those apples, I get it. So now if you don't like apples, you say, well, okay, I don't really think you get it. So maybe I'll bring the donuts back. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible to James chapter 3. So glad today in our service that uh, the Duartes are able to be here. Sergio, I saw you come in. Uh, There you are. Sergio and Andrea are here. And uh, brother, we have been praying for you. We're so thankful that your uh, hip replacement went well and uh, recovering. So glad that you were able to be here. I know many, many folks are going to want to greet you after our service. And uh, and then we have uh, another guest here today who's here for, I believe, the very, very first time. And he's someone we have prayed for a ton. And um, and I think we, we told you of his arrival, but he's actually here today. And that is uh, little... Uh, Carson uh, Ironsides. So where are the Ironsides? I saw Kristen earlier. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Back there. They're waving at us. So, and, uh, and so Kristen has a little Carson there. Everybody look around and see little Carson back there. Uh, we are so glad that the Lord uh, gave him to you. We're eager to meet him today. I already had a preview, so I'm just so thankful. You know, every once in a while you come to... Um, a passage in a book, and, and you begin to realize as you meditate on that passage that this passage really is the heartbeat. It is the center of the book. And that's really where we're at today in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. There is an amazing introduction that James does in the first two verses, and we looked at that. And when we get to the end of the book, at the end of chapter 5, we're going to see where James is taking the whole book. But the center of the book, the theological heart of the book, is in these paragraphs that we're looking at this morning. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to slow down for just a minute. We've been making our way fairly quickly through the book of James. We've been looking at fairly large chunks of James at a time. So what I'd like to do this week and next, given the centrality of this paragraph to the book, is I'd like to look at the content of what he's going to say today in general terms. This week and next week, I want to zero in and I want us to make some applications that James makes uh, to our lives and to our congregation. Of course, we'll do that along the way today as well. Every once in a while, you have a moment that comes I think in your life, like it does in, in mine, where, where you have one of these disconcerting and embarrassing moments. And one of those is, there, there's really not too many things that are more embarrassing, there are, but not too many, uh, than to think you are right about something and to be adamant about that and verbal about that, only to find out that you were actually wrong about the thing that you were so confident about. And that happened to me uh, a couple of years ago, actually many years ago, at a time during my ministry that involved a great deal of travel. I lived up in the north part of Wisconsin, and the nearest airport 
was an hour and a half from my home. And almost every week, I would make the trip down to that airport and get on a plane and fly somewhere to preach on a weekend. And so you can imagine uh, that hour and a half drive uh, got long and sometimes there were delays or sometimes things would happen. And I would find myself coming into the airport and just barely having enough time to make the flight. I flew in and out of that airport with a couple of other guys I work with and because we flew so regularly, the people at the airport got to know us on a first name basis. And so they kind of knew who we were. And one day, I was uh, flying to uh, Detroit, uh, Michigan, and I was running late. And I got to the airport late. This was before 9-11, because after 9-11, this would never have happened. But I got through security really quickly, and I literally was running to catch my plane. And the lady that worked the counter was also working the plane, because it was a very, very small airport. And she recognized me and she said, hey, Sam, hurry up, get on the plane, I'll hold the door for you. So I ran through the door, got in, you know, got on the plane. The plane was not very full that day for some reason. I put my bag in the overhead uh, compartment above me, sat down, buckled in, and there was an empty seat next to me and then up against the window was my seatmate. And so I was trying to catch my breath and uh, sitting there and, and, and I was the last person on the plane and as they were sort of doing their pre-flight uh, checks, the uh, stewardess got on the intercom and said, welcome uh, to flight such and such. We hope that you have a wonderful journey to Minneapolis. <laughs> and I just looked over at the guy next to me and smiled as, you know, someone who flies a lot. And I just kind of nodded my head. I said, you know, sometimes they get it wrong. <laughs> and he looked back at me and he said, um, where do you think we're going? He said, we're all going to Minneapolis. Where are you going? And I had inadvertently gotten on the wrong plane. Can I just tell you, there is no um, less than embarrassing way to get off a plane like that. You just grab your stuff. Everybody's watching. And you're making your way. And you're waving at the lady saying, I have to get off the plane. So they had to open the door, and uh, I got on the right plane at some point, got to Detroit. You know, here's what I learned from that very embarrassing experience. Regularity and familiarity do not always get you to the right location. Just because you're familiar and just because you're regular doesn't mean that you're going to get to the right location. Here's what happened. I had a boarding pass and she had a passenger manifest. And because of regularity and familiarity, neither one of us checked our documents. And if we had, we would have caught the error. You know, when we come to the book of James chapter 3 in the paragraph that we are reading together this morning, James is assuming two things about people that have made two very big claims. And by the way, these are the same claims that I hope you would make in your life. So it's not that the claims are bad. James is about to talk to people who have made two important claims in their life. Claim number one is that they possess a living faith. 
And James assumes this about them because he talks to them this way in the letter. He says, for example, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, and in chapter 1, verse 9, and in chapter 1, verse 16, I mean, we can just go through the book and all the way, all the way to chapter 5, verse 19, James is going to talk to these people and he's going to call them my brethren or my brothers. And sometimes he's even going to say something like this, my beloved brothers. So it's very clear that when James is writing this, he is writing to people who are asserting something. They are claiming something. And the claim they are making is this. Claim number one is I am in possession of a living faith. Claim number two is that that faith is maturing me. That faith is growing me. That faith is making its work known in my life, and it is producing spiritual maturity in my life. And you can see him talk about this in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, when he talks about what produces maturity, what makes us complete, and it is the enduring of trials. When we let trials work in our life, and we persevere, and we endure, and then endurance has its completing work, James says, you will be mature. You will be complete and perfect, lacking nothing. In chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, he talks about what that maturity actually looks like in life. It looks like a person who is quick to hear, who is slow to speak, who is slow to anger because he realizes or she realizes that the wrath of man, the anger of man does not produce the work of God. He goes on to talk about being a a, a doer and not just a hearer only. So it's very clear as we get to the heart of the book here that James is writing this letter to people like us and he is addressing people who have made two important claims. Claim number one, I possess a living faith, the kind of faith that Abraham had, the kind of faith that Rahab had. We saw what that looked like in chapter 2. And claim number 2, that faith is at work growing me in my life. And so what James is going to do here is this. He is going to take that second claim. He's already, he's already dealt with the first claim in chapter 2. He's already talked about what a living faith looks like. He looked at people like us. And he said, okay, if you say you have this kind of a faith, if you have a living faith, a genuine faith, then show me that faith by what it does. Show me, that's the idea of display, verify, validate. Validate your faith, validate your claim to that faith by showing the works that that faith is producing in your life. And he used... Abraham as an example of that, and he used Rahab as an example of that. And we spent three Sundays together looking at how James actually deals with that claim in our life. If you have a living faith in your life, here's what it should be doing. It should be producing in you faith-generated works that are faithful to the will of God, the Word of God, the will of God, and the work of God. But what happens when we make the claim that we're wise? And by wise here, we mean mature. What happens when we stand up in front of a person like James and we say to James, James, actually, we have a living faith, which I hope all of us would say, 
And then we would say this, that living faith is living in us. It is actually working in us. And James would say, all right, just like I asked you to show your faith, I'm going to ask you now to show your wisdom. And this is what he talks about in verse 13 when he says, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Here's where, here's where James is going with this. He is going to say that the evidence of a living faith is the work that it produces in us, and the evidence of spiritual maturity is the wisdom that governs us. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk a little bit about what James means when he talks about wisdom. And I'm going to put a sentence up on the screen that I want you to think about with me, all right? So let me have that sentence. Uh, And it's the sentence that talks about spiritual maturing people embrace a specific kind of wisdom. You're shaking your head saying you don't have that slide. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Let me read it to you, okay? Spiritually maturing people embrace a specific kind of wisdom which cultivates in them uniquely Christian virtues, all right? Spiritually maturing people embrace a specific kind of wisdom which cultivates in them uniquely Christian virtues. And then those virtues are displayed in a consistent Christian conduct. And so we're going to unpack that together this morning, all right? Spiritually maturing people, and James calls for those people. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? He's he's saying, listen, if you are in this category, then I'm about to talk very directly to you. Spiritually maturing people embrace a specific kind of wisdom which cultivates in them unique Christian virtues that display themselves in distinct Christian conduct. So virtues and conduct are going to be at the heart of where James heads with this idea about wisdom. So we need to talk about wisdom today. Let's, let's let James teach us a few things about wisdom. And let's start with this. Number one, the nature of that true wisdom. The nature of that true wisdom. And James is going to make four main ideas around that concept. Who is wise and understanding? You see the word wise and understanding, those two terms? Well, they're going to show up in a number of places this morning that I'm going to call your attention. So when we talk about the nature of true wisdom, James would say it this way, the nature of wisdom, that the kind of wisdom that I'm talking about is this, it is spiritual and it is not worldly. It is spiritual and it is not worldly. That's the first thing James is going to want you to see about this wisdom. It is spiritual and it is not worldly. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, back in chapter 2, James said there are two kinds of faith that people have. And when they talk to you about the faith, it sounds remarkably the same. The same language comes out of their mouth. This is what I believe. I believe this about Jesus. I believe this about God. I believe this about the Scripture. So what comes out of their mouth sounds remarkably the same, but there are two kinds of faith. One is a living faith, and the other 
is a dead faith. And James is going to make a big deal back in chapter 2 about those two kinds of faith. Here in chapter 3, he's going to do the same thing with wisdom. He is going to say there are two kinds of wisdom. And they both talk remarkably alike. When you listen to what comes out about the wisdom, it is remarkably similar. But one wisdom is from above and the other wisdom is from below. And so James is going to lay out these two kinds of wisdom. And so my way of saying that to you is one wisdom, the wisdom that's from above is spiritual and the other from below is worldly. There are, there are some wisdoms the world has and then there is a wisdom that God has given his people. Now I told you we were going to be looking at some texts. If you have a Bible this morning, let me encourage you to go over to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4 and I want to show you this. Now, you'll remember the book of Deuteronomy comes at the very end of the first section of your Bible, the Pentateuch, and it is written to the second generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt. The first generation was delivered. They had, they had gone through the Red Sea. They had experienced the Exodus. They got out into the wilderness, and because of their unbelief that they exhibited repeatedly against the Lord, God finally said to them, you are not going in to the land I promised to give Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you. You're not going in. But your children are going in. And so by the time the first generation had died and the second generation had come to the forefront, Moses, now an old man, is going to give them his sort of final uh, exhortation, his final reminders, and that is the book of Deuteronomy. And right at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says, now when you go into that land, there is a wisdom that God has given you that is going to be very different from the wisdom of all of the other nations that are around you. And so that's the background to what I'm about to read you. Listen to what Moses says when he says this. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, who when they hear all of these statues will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Moses is saying to these people, listen, when you go into that land, there are all of these nations. In fact, when you read the book of Acts, you find out there are seven different nations that occupy the land these people are about to go in. And every one of those nations has a wisdom they occupy and they, and they operate by. Every one of those nations has a way that they think will help them get rain. Every one of those nations has a wisdom that they think will help them win a war. Every one of those nations has a wisdom by which they operate and and, and they think maybe this will help our, our fields be productive. This will help the river rise. This will allow us to do all the things that we need to do as a nation. Every nation had a wisdom. And God said to his people, I am going to give you true wisdom. I'm going to give you true understanding. 
And when you go into that land and the other nations observe this wisdom and what it does for you, their jaw is going to drop. They're going to look at you and they're going to say, this is amazing. This nation has an amazing wisdom. And they're going to come to you and they're going to say, how do you do that? How do you get rain the way you get rain? Because when we want rain and we're desperate for it, we have to feed our children to the river so the river will rise. Or we have to give our children to be burned in front of our gods so that our gods will give favor to our fields. But you don't have to do any of that. How is it that you have a wisdom that brings you rain? How is it that you have a wisdom that makes your fields grow? How is it that you have a wisdom that does all of this? Surely you are a wise and an understanding people because you have a God that is near to you. That's what James has in mind when he's talking about the two kinds of wisdom. He's looking at people who live in all the little kingdoms of the world, but they are part of the big kingdom over which Jesus is the king. And just like God gave to his Old Testament people a wisdom, God has given to every person who lives in the big kingdom a wisdom that is different than the wisdom that drives all the little kingdoms of the world. And James says, now that's the wisdom that needs to drive you. It is the wisdom that is spiritual. And then he says this, wisdom is inherently relational. The wisdom that we're talking about that is so different from the wisdom of all the other little kingdoms of the world, the wisdom James has in mind isn't just wisdom that is spiritual, it is wisdom that is inherently relational. Listen to Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. All through the Old Testament, we're going to run into this phrase, the fear of the Lord. And so let me just kind of put that phrase in context for you. In the Old Testament, the idea of the fear of the Lord became a standard way of talking about somebody just like we have a standard way of talking about Christians today, we would say, are you a believer? Are you a genuine Christian? Are you born again? You know, my, are you recognizing this language? We would look at one another and we would say to one another, well, you know, tell me how you got born again. We just finished our, our last Sunday was our final Sunday for this round of uh, PBC 101. And we'll have another one coming up soon. So if you're interested, uh, you can let the church office know. And I'm sure they'll be glad to put you in that next round. But the last Sunday of every uh, PBC 101, we call it story time. And it's an opportunity for everybody to tell their story. And the part of the story that we're all eager to hear is how that person became a what? A Christian. How were they born again? And we're not looking for just head knowledge, right? We're not looking for someone to just say, well, I I know about Jesus. He came down from heaven. He was born of a virgin. He he lived a perfect life. He died and he rose again. Uh, No, we're looking for this intimate relationship. We're looking for the fact that this person has genuinely been born again. You know what I'm talking about? 
The Old Testament way of talking about that was the fear of the Lord. In New Testament times, we ask, are you born again? In Old Testament times, it would be, do you fear the Lord? Are you fearing the Lord? And that's what James has in mind. This kind of wisdom is the kind of wisdom that only comes to a person who knows the Lord, who is rightly related to the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the source of wisdom. That's the idea of the term beginning. It's the origin of wisdom. It's the source of wisdom. It's the fountainhead from which all other wisdom flows. And so James is picking up on this idea and he is arguing that the kind of wisdom that comes from above is only available to people who are rightly related to God because God is the source of that wisdom and out of him is the flow of that wisdom. You can't get this wisdom any other way. And then James says something else. It's primarily moral and ethical in nature. It's spiritual and not worldly. It is inherently relational and it is primarily moral and ethical. Listen to Job 28. Job said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And then he goes on to say this, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Wisdom, the kind of wisdom that Job is talking about, the kind of wisdom that James is talking about, is going to display itself in the cultivation of moral and ethical character. Let me give you an illustration. Maybe that will help us. Um, I'm assuming that most of you, all of you, have a computer, you own a computer, or you use a computer, right? So let me just do a little test here. How many of you have a PC computer? Can I see your hands? Hold your hands up high. I'm about to start a church war here. How many of you have a PC? All right, hold your hands up high. All right, you hold your hands up high. All right. How many of you have an Apple product? You have a Macintosh, all right? You guys hold your hands up high. All right. Um, Okay, what's the difference between the two? And you're like, worlds of difference, pastor, right? There's a reason I'm a PC, and that's because I am a godly person. You know, if you, if you have a Macintosh, it's got an apple on it, and it's not the apple in the tree. It's the one that fell from the tree, and somebody took a bite of it and just plunged the whole world into whatever we're in, right? And I'm going, that is really bad exegesis. In all full disclosure, I have a Macintosh computer, so I'm a little prejudiced. Uh, but you know what, what, what's interesting about that? Each of those has a completely different what? Operating system. You can have a $2,500 souped-up laptop with all of the bells and whistles, but if you don't have the operating system for that laptop, what good is it? It does nothing. The operating system is what makes everything else possible. And whether it's a Macintosh or a PC, it has an operating system that is unique and it drives everything that happens internally in that machine. And James is saying this, the kind of wisdom that we're talking about that is spiritual and it is relational and it produces moral 
character and ethical behavior. That kind of wisdom is the operating system of your life. And if there are only two kinds of wisdom, then one of those wisdoms is going to be driving the way you think. It's going to be driving how you operate. It's going to be driving how your character is shaped. It's going to be driving all of the things that come out of you. Wisdom, according to James, is like the operating system of the heart. And that's why wisdom for James, the fourth thing is this, wisdom is experiential rather than merely intellectual. For James, wisdom isn't just what you know. And it's not just what you accomplish. It is who you are. It is who you are and what comes out of who you are. Wisdom is inherently relational. And so when James calls... For those who are wise and understanding, he's actually thinking of someone who knows God and whose life is being shaped according to that knowledge, that relationship with God. So on the one hand, if wisdom is the operating system of your heart, another way of thinking about wisdom when we're talking about it being experiential is this. It's, it's, it's hearing and doing. It's actually producing things in your life. And so if wisdom is the operating system of your heart, then wisdom is also the transmission of your life. Think about your car. Think about all the power that's under the hood or that you wish were under the hood. Think about, you know, all that your car is and how much you paid for it. And if that car landed in your driveway without a transmission, how far are you going to get? I mean, you've got all the power, you've got all the cylinders, you've got all the electrical system, you've got this killer sound system inside, it's got this awesome paint job, it's got, I mean, smoking hot tires. I mean, this, this vehicle is your dream car, but it doesn't have a transmission. All of that power never gets through the differential down into the gear system and into the wheels. And so you go nowhere. And so when James is talking about wisdom, these are the two illustrations maybe that will help us understand how to put what he's been talking about into some kind of usable framework. This wisdom from above is to be the operating system of our heart and it is the transmission of our life. All right, so that's the nature of it, which, which is very different than any kind of wisdom that was going on in the nations around them. I mean, if you... Uh, we're, we're reading this in James's time, and you lived in the city of Ephesus. Or maybe you lived in Thessalonica, or maybe you lived somewhere in uh, what is now modern-day Turkey. I mean, maybe you, or you were over in Macedonia. You lived in Greece, and maybe you lived in Philippi or, or somewhere. And, and you heard this, and then you went out into the marketplace of life, and you started talking about wisdom. Everybody would have an idea about wisdom. And they said, oh, yeah, we know about wisdom. And they would be looking for someone who had a deep understanding of the gods. Here's how the gods work. Or they would look for someone who had a deep understanding of the laws and the value system of the Roman Empire or who knew the poets or the philosophers uh, in the Greek world or that were initiated deeply into the mysteries of the pagan religions. And they would look at somebody like that and say, now that is a wise man. 
That's what wisdom is. Or they might look at somebody and say, now that person over there, if you just knew that person, look at all the land he's accumulated. Look at all the villas that he's built. Look at the position he occupies in the Roman Senate. Look at the, 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 the climb he has made in the social world of our day. And they would look at a man like that and they would say, now that is a wise man. But the kind of wisdom that James is talking about, when that kind of wisdom showed up in somebody's life, nobody would have considered that wisdom. Because this wisdom does the exact opposite. It's not measured in how high you get. It's not measured in how much you accumulate. It's not measured in how much you know or how much respect you have or what you received. It's measured in one thing. Are you living in ways that display the beauty of God? Are you living in ways that display the beauty of the living God? Remember the wisdom that God gave to ancient Israel? This book of the law, these statutes, these rules will be your wisdom in the sight of the nation. And when they see what comes out of that wisdom in your life, they're going to want to know about your God. They're going to think of you as a wise and discerning nation, and they're going to want to know how you have such an amazing relationship with your God because our gods don't do anything like this for us. And in James's day, when, when James's readers would live by this wisdom, that was to be the result. And Peter actually talks about this in chapter 1 of his book when he says that when you live according to the wisdom from above, the people are going to look and they're going to see your good conduct and they're going to glorify God on the day that he chooses to visit. So this is a stunning wisdom. And that brings us to the second big idea that James has in this paragraph for us, and that is the source of wisdom. Where do we find this wisdom? And in verse 17, he says it this way, wisdom from above. Wisdom from above. It's sourced in God. God is the only place where you can find this wisdom. There isn't any other place to get it. You can search for it. Job said, where do I find it? You can search for it. This is how Job described it in chapter 28 of Job. He said this, I know where to go to find silver. I know where to go to find gold. I know how to tunnel under mountains to find hidden treasure. I know where to go to find those things. But where do I go to find the kind of wisdom that I'm looking for? And James's answer to that question is this. There's only one place where you can find that wisdom. It's not available anywhere else. You can go to every temple in Rome. You can go to every uh, school at Ephesus. You, you can go to every uh, senate meeting. You can go to everything you want to go to in the pagan world around you. And James says you will never find this wisdom because this wisdom has only one source. It is from above. It is God. He's already said that, right, in chapter 1, verse 5. If any man lack wisdom, let him do what? Let him go and get a graduate degree at the school of Tyrannus, or let him go study at the feet of the Greek philosophers. Is that what he said? If any man lack wisdom, let him go where? 
Let him go to God and what? Ask. God is the only source of this wisdom. And where has God located the wisdom physically? Where has he put the wisdom? Where has he put the wisdom? You know where he's put the wisdom? You're holding it in your hand. God sent living wisdom in the person of Jesus, but he wrote a book with all of the wisdom he wants you to have about Jesus. That's why throughout James, we have been told about the living word which brought us forth. We have been told about the perfect law of liberty. We have been told about the royal law. And in chapter 2, verse 8, he sums it all up. That, that word of truth, that perfect law of liberty, that royal law is here. It is the scripture. It is your Bible. And ladies and gentlemen, this morning, that's why your Bible is the most important thing you could own in your life. It's the most important treasure you could have in your life. It is the location of the wisdom that God has given to be the operating system of your heart and the transmission of your life. The Word of God is where that wisdom is located. And that's why James says you need to be a doer of this Word and not just a hearer only. And that's why James in chapter 1, verse 21 says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. This written word that's located in Scripture, when you became a believer, God planted it in your heart. God put the Holy Spirit in your life so that as you read the Scripture, all of a sudden you begin to see things that only God could show you. Let me give you an illustration of this. And it's a familiar story. You remember Peter walking um, on the streets toward Philippi, way up in the north part of Israel, and he's walking with the other disciples and the Lord, and they're having this conversation together. And as they're walking along, they're, they're heading up to, uh, to this incredible place in the northern part of Israel. And Jesus looks at his men, and he says to them, so I have a question for you. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? This is in Matthew 16, all right? And Peter immediately starts to answer. But before you listen to Peter's answer, don't miss something in the question. Jesus wasn't just saying, so Peter, tell me, who do people think I am? He wanted to know what people were thinking about a specific title that belonged to him. Who do people think that I, the Son of Man, am? And it's that Son of Man title that is so interesting because it shows up in a vision that God gave Daniel in the book of Daniel chapter 7. Remember when Daniel appears and he has this vision and he's in, in the vision, he's, he's in heaven, and he's brought before this throne, and the person sitting on the throne is described this way. He is more ancient than days. And that immediately tells you who he is. And somebody is presented to him. He comes in great pomp and in great glory. He comes in clouds, 
and he's presented to the person sitting on that throne, and, and the person on the throne gives to that person in the cloud glory and honor and power and a kingdom. And so you want to know who that person is. And Daniel says, let me tell you his title. That person is the son of man. And so when Jesus is asking Peter and the disciples, who do people think I, the son of man, am? Here's what he's asking. Do people think that I am that son of man that Daniel predicted would come? Is that what people are thinking? And Peter said, no, actually, people are thinking a lot of things about you. People think that maybe you're Elijah, come back. People think you might be John the Baptist, come back from the dead. People think you're a good teacher. People think you're a good rabbi. But nobody is thinking of you in terms of the Son of Man. And so Jesus looks at Peter and he says to Peter, but Peter, who do you? And he talks about all of them. Who do you think I am? And you remember Peter's answer? Peter said, we know exactly who you are. It's just like pours out of his mouth. We know exactly who you are. We know that you are the Christ. We know that you're that Messiah that we've been waiting for. We know that you are the Christ, but we know something else. We know that you are more than the Christ. We know that you are the son of the living God. We know that you are that person who was on that cloud before the ancient of days that Daniel saw. And you remember what? Jesus said to Peter, he said, Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, and here's why you're blessed. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out because you were thinking better than anybody else. You you didn't figure this out because you were more brilliant than all of the other people in Israel. You got this information because my father revealed it to you. And by the way, that's exactly how you came to conclude what you believe about Jesus Christ personally because God chose to open your eyes so that you would see the truth of the gospel and recognize the beauty of Jesus Christ and embrace him as your Lord and Savior. You have experienced the word that God implanted in your heart already if you're a genuine believer. And that's why we can read it and do it. And that brings us then to the evidence and the expression of this true wisdom. What does it actually look like when it's operating in my life? When, when the operating system kicks on and the transmission falls in gear, what comes out on the other end? And James says, well, let's, let's talk about the evidence of this. Look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct... Let him display, let him show. This is the same word that he used back in chapter 2 when he was saying, let me show faith by works. The same idea here. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What comes out on the other end when the operating system and the transmission are operating in our life? Well, in disposition, humility. Humility in the meekness, and the gentleness of wisdom. Humility is this. It is gracious, gentle submission to God and to others. It is, it is gracious, gentle submission to God and to others that he has placed over me 
or that he has asked me to serve. It's a graciousness that comes out of your life, not just out of your mouth, but it comes out of your life. It is, it is what wisdom produces, but it's interesting that in order to have this wisdom, you have to be humble. Humility is both a requirement of it and an expression of it. I humble myself before God and I admit that I'm a sinner and I admit that I can't save myself. I admit that because of my sins, my crimes against God, God is just to condemn me to hell. That is a hard thing to embrace. Let me just tell you, it's hard. It's not hard to agree that you're a sinner. That's not hard at all. We, we actually talk about this, right? Well, actually, nobody's what? Can you finish that? Nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes, right? I mean, we have language that acknowledges that. If I ask somebody, are you a sinner? Nobody is going to come back and say no. They're all going to say, well, of course, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes, right? But if, what if I were to ask this? Are you a criminal? Are you a criminal? How would you answer that? And there's something that recoils in me. There's something that recoils in my heart. When I look at that question, I'm going to say, no, I'm not a criminal. I'm a sinner, but I'm not a criminal. And until we recognize that sin is a crime against God, we will never understand the severity of that sentence. The wages of sin is what? Death. We got put on spiritual death row because of our crimes against God. And until we humble ourselves and we say, okay, God, that is exactly what I am. I didn't just make a mistake. I didn't just mess up. I didn't just blow it. I am actually a criminal because I broke your laws. Until I humble myself and come before God and say, God, there's nothing I can do. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no amount of money I can give you. There's no amount of good works I can do to make this up. There's no amount of religious rituals or washings I can do. I just have to come to you and admit what I am. And James says, mercy triumphed over judgment. God said, I forgive you. And he didn't just say that. He said, it's not just that I'm going to forgive you and walk away from you. I'm going to embrace you and make you a full member of my family. And I'm going to give you full rights. I'm going to give you the same rights to rule over the earth that I am giving my son. It's an astonishing thing. And the only way you get it is by humbling yourself. In disposition, it's humble. In character, it's pure. Look at verse 17 again. Wisdom from above is first and foremost pure. The idea there isn't just pure in the sense that it has no blemish. Again, James's readers were coming out of a Jewish context. They knew all about purity. How did you get purity? Well, you ritually purified everything. You washed your hands and you washed your clothes. And if you were going to the temple, you washed yourself and everything had to be ritually purified. And James says, that is not at all what I'm talking about when I talk about purity. When I talk about purity here, I'm talking about wholeness. 
I'm talking about soundness. It's the idea that James introduced in chapter one when he talked about coming to God and, and letting wisdom and letting endurance and letting trials have their perfecting work and making us whole, making us healthy, making us sound. And so when James says, first of all, wisdom is pure, he is saying this, it is unified, it is whole, it is healthy, it is sound. And out of that soundness comes all kinds of things. It produces a conduct that is good. The word conduct has reference to a consistent way of life. The word good has the idea of the beauty and the benefit of what's coming out of your life. It's the word that you met all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 when God made something and then he saw what he made and he noted that it was what? It was good. Every created day ends with, and God saw that it was good. And that's the idea here. God is saying this through James, when this wisdom is operating in your life, when it's the operating system that is is driving the transmission that moves your life forward, what comes out of that sound, whole, healthy wisdom is good. I'm going to look at that And I'm going to say the same thing about that that I said back in Genesis 1 when I created the earth on day 1 and on day 2 and on day 3 and on day 4 and on day 5 and on day 6. And on day 7, I looked at everything and I saw that it was very good. And when this operating system is at work in your life and the transmission is rolling in your life, what comes out of your life, God says this, when I look at what comes out of your life, it is good. It's, there's this beauty. There's this benefit. I mean, when you lived in that world that God created for those seven days before the fall, it was awesome. It was beneficial. It was beautiful. There was open fellowship. And God says, when the wisdom from above is operating in your life, nobody else around you is going to know it, but here's what's going to happen. I'm going to look at that and I'm going to say, that is good. That is good. And that brings us then really to the final thing, and that is this. What is the orientation of all of this? And what is its result? What is its orientation, and what is its goal? What is its result? And the orientation of it is this. It is living in this world for a world that is coming. It is living in this world for a world that is coming. This is what Abraham did. He lived looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. He looked for a city, right? That's what he was looking for. So what are you living for in this world? And the answer is when your operating system is wisdom from above, you're never living for this world. You're always living for the world to come. You're always living for the world to come. And what is going to mark the world to come is this. It is shalom. It is peace. And that's why James says that the seed of all of this is sown in peace by those who make peace. The world to come is a world that will be marked by shalom. And when the operating system 
of your life and the transmission that drives your life is the wisdom from above, your life will be lived for that world in this world. You'll be living now for the world to come and your life will be a display of shalom. Your relationships with God and with each other will be marked by shalom. That's what Jesus meant in the Beatitudes when he said, blessed are the what? The peacemakers. That's what James is talking about. And so as we come back next week and we see how this now fleshes out into our own lives, may the Lord help us to meditate deeply on which wisdom is driving us. I'd like to ask you to just bow your head very quietly and, and ask yourself about the operating system of your life and the transmission of your life. What is it doing? Is it, is it moving you to live now for the world to come? Or are you just like everybody else <clears throat> living for right now? Consumed by what is happening in your world and in your kingdom when the kingdom of God is just something we talk about on Sunday. James would say to you, like he said to the person in chapter 2 who said, this is my kind of faith. James said, that faith is dead and it is powerless to save you. And he would look at you and he would say to you, the wisdom that you're operating by is powerless to mature you. It's powerless to sanctify you. So as we leave this morning, may the right wisdom drive us. Lord, thank you for the way you have laid this out so clearly in the text before us. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us as we operate to understand which wisdom is driving us. Lord, you've planted in us the word that brought us to salvation. Help us not to bring in another operating system by which we live our daily life. May we come humbly and submissively to your word. May we value it. May we read it. And may we do it. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.